You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 97. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. And check us out at codingblocks.net where you can find show notes, samples, discussion, and other stuff. Send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net. Follow us on Twitter at codingblocks or head to www.codingblocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. With that, I'm Alan Underwood. I'm Jazak. And I'm Michael Outlaw. This episode is brought to you by O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference. Have you got any plans this February? No? Well, now you do. This February, the 3rd through the 6th in New York City, O'Reilly is hosting the Software Architecture Conference. I mean, you want an excuse to visit New York City anyways, right? So, I mean, you're welcome. <laughs> the uh, O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference is the only conference that focuses exclusively on software architecture and the evolution of that role. So, if you want to dive into technical weeds by covering complex topics from microservices to domain-driven design with different learning styles available, ranging from 50-minute sessions to two-day training courses, learn how to communicate, wait, scratch that, sell, complex technical topics and their merit to both upper management and technical teams with training courses like the Architectural Elevator. (laughs) Well, wait, I'm not an architect yet, you say. Well, a special networking experience called Architectural Katas is where you can go to practice being a software architect by breaking up into smaller groups and working together with other people on a project that actually needs development. Yeah, network with people using the same tech stack that you use to gain personal insight that you can apply to your own environment. The O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference covers the skills and tools every software architect needs. Use the code BLOCKS, that's B L. O-C-K-S during your registration to get 20% off of most passes to the O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference. All right, and we're back talking about trees tonight and uh, tries to, and whoa, we'll whoa, get into that whoa, here in a second. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, differences between... Uh, yeah, first bit podcast. So, um, I'm going to read the iTunes uh, reviews. Really big thank you to Sound Shop and Tim Graff. You know, really appreciate that. And from Stitcher, we have K-Springs, Trickermand, Delden, and Flow. Very nice. And I've got, I've got something that I want to bring up. And I, and I think it was maybe Coding Blocks episode 74. I don't remember off the top of my head. Uh, I mean, but, of course you remember the numbers right off the top of your head. Actually, I'm going to go there real quick and see. But here's the thing. You remember when we were doing clean architecture and we were talking about the whole thing where it was really cool that they coded to an interface and so they could swap out the storage mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. It was the story where he never, he never coded to a specific database and instead he assumed file system. And then you just kept going with that assumption until they eventually realized that they never actually needed it. Yes. And so they could just plug in whatever they wanted, right? So it is episode 74. So Christian Satnick, he's actually written in a couple of times. And right after we did that episode, he's like, you know, hey, I see that you guys were impressed by that. He's like, but wait a second. You know, I'm paying for this super awesome technology out here. Why would I code to some generic interface and not to and not take advantage of the technology? That's a good point. And it's funny. So Joe and I just recently ran into a similar situation where it's like, okay, the interfaces that we might have had in place were very tailored towards a specific technology. They weren't written to take advantage of, of that exact technology, but when they were created, they definitely had that in mind, right? So, so some of the limitations of what was there 
and some of the ways that you know that you'd have to do things were part of that interface. And then we were going to switch over to a new technology. And it had all kinds of awesome things in it that basically made things easier and faster. But in order to take advantage of that, you'd have to redo your interfaces, right? You'd, you'd have to redo those things that you were trying to make generic to make them awesome. So, so in other words, <clears throat> the abstraction wasn't abstract enough. It, not even that. Like there's, there's just a certain level of. Well, because part of it was more had kept it in mind is what I was getting at. Well, right? it, it was, it was made in a very generic way. And by doing, so it was very abstract, I guess is it, going back. It wasn't that it wasn't abstract enough. It was very abstract, but doing it that way meant that you could not take advantage of the new thing you wanted to plug in. Okay. Right. And, and, and it was, we actually had this conversation, Joe and I did where we were like, well, crap, what do we do, man? Do we, do we just code it to this provider interface that we did previously, which seems really stupid. Why even move over to this new technology if we're not going to take advantage of everything it has to offer, or at least a lot of what it has to offer. And I, I don't know what, what have we ended up landing with there? I mean, I, it definitely made me think about some things because coding to the least common denominator, you start losing advantages. And then, you know, we talked about the example of like the file system database. Like maybe the reason they stuck with file system was because if they just <laughs> dumbed down the interface of the SQL database so much that it wasn't worth switching, then it wasn't really worth moving over for. And so you got to kind of include that in your calculations. But I, I, it's really hard because you, when you talk about coding to an interface or something like that, like a persistence, persistence layer, you're assuming that it's like a, a logical kind of easy modular swap. And it may not be the case if you're going to something completely different. So I think about like if you're making a video game, you don't want to totally abstract around like the graphics rendering engine, for example. Like if you're doing stuff in DirectX 11 or DirectX 2 or maybe a 2D engine, you know, how crazy do you want to get? Like if you try to make your game so it'll work in a 2D engine or a 3D engine, I mean, it just doesn't even make sense, right? right. So there's going to be technical decisions that you make that either limit or greatly increase your capacity. And so... Uh, you know, it, it's tough and I don't really know what the right answer is, but I think in that case, like in our case where things that just have wildly different capabilities, I think it makes sense to just swap over and maybe treat that new thing, like create new interfaces around that. So you could swap it out with something that's kind of uh, has more of a feature parity with it. Yeah. But it, I don't know if that's the textbook answer though. I mean, <clears throat> I was going to say, uh, well, now I lost my train of thought on it. Of what I was going to say, um, well, well, while you get that back, it'll be a minute. There's so uh, I'll draw two parallels that I that I think are interesting. So we've talked about search in the past. We did a whole episode on search, right? And we talked about Elasticsearch specifically. Now, here's a good example of where that doesn't necessarily translate perfectly. If you look at something like AWS's Cloud Search, and you try and compare it directly to Elasticsearch. The basic search features are there, but Elastic bolts on a ton more, right? Like you've got things like crazy types of aggregation that you can do. You've also got machine learning type stuff that is built in if you want to take advantage of that. So if you code to the lowest common denominator between those two things, you are, you are basically just cutting off a ton of functionality that 
that you could take advantage of in Elasticsearch versus Cloud Search. Does that mean one technology is better than the other? Not really, per se. It's more along the lines of, hey, they built this one out to do more, right? Yeah, I mean, okay, so I remember what I was going to say, but your comment there just made me think that, like, another example, too, could be, like, if you were not even go to, like, search engines. It could be something as simple as, like, Oracle versus SQL Server. Yeah. And instead of being able to take advantage of the features that T-SQL might provide for you, instead you're like, well, I want to be able, I wanted the ability to plug in either, so I'm just going to use ANSI SQL. Yeah. Just to keep – I'm going to dumb down all the SQL statements. So there's inefficiencies that you're interjecting – because you're trying to dumb it down. But uh, the, the the previous thought that I had that uh, eluded me a moment ago, though, was it almost makes a case for basically like an, the anti-clean architecture approach, which is Yagni. Yeah, you ain't, ain't going to need, need it. it. Yeah, just right? code it the way you like, need it. Yeah, like why, why, bother, to, why bother to assume you're going to switch this thing out? Because the reality is, are you? Will right. you? right. And it's hard. It's really hard to make those decisions up front because you don't know, right? And and I do want to point out, like we had a great thread going here on on the episode seventy four, in that he's also seen this happen in other places. And and ironically, Joe and I have also talked about this. And actually, Outlaw, you and I probably have as well. Is you'll see this being done in the cloud mm-hmm. also, right? You've you've done something on premise. You have an application that works a certain way, and and you're like, well, I just want to make this this thing, this square peg fit in this round hole up in the cloud, right? And that's, man, that's not the way to do it. Like, if you ever take the time to start looking at cloud services and and what they offer you, if you want to get bang for your buck and actually take advantage of what the cloud can give you when you're using something like AWS or Azure, or Google, um, Google Cloud. You want to look at the services they offer, their managed services, and and figure out how you can take advantage of it. It shouldn't be, hey, I'm going to go drop my app in a VM up in the cloud and run it because there's there's several things, right? You're not going to get the the bang for your buck because you're going to pay a lot for that compute. Scaling is going to be an issue. Scaling, you're not going to get that for free because now you got to manage it all yourself. Whereas if you use some of these cloud services, you get that. So it was just, it was a really great conversation because the same things that apply in terms of code also apply when you start looking at infrastructure, like cloud infrastructure versus on-prem infrastructure and all that. So uh, it just, I, I wanted to bring it up because I mean, it, it was such a good you know, we talk about things and, and I love it when people come back with, with a differing opinion on things. Cause mm-hmm. we, we all thought it was cool, right? Hey, man, you know, Uncle Bob Barton created this interface that he could basically plug a MySQL thing in, a file system thing in. And it is cool, but he also had a very simplistic thing that he was dealing with. And that makes the decision a little bit easier, right? Like when you start looking at complexities of systems, then, then you got to start figuring out. So maybe that maybe that's the takeaway here. Like maybe that's the deciding factor is how complex is the thing that you're thinking about abstracting? You know, maybe maybe the more complex it is and the more efficiencies that you could gain from adhering to it, maybe that's when you decide. But then that sounds so counterintuitive because right. it sounds like that's the that's the exact case that you want to. I don't know, man. It, it, it's, you know what? This is all hard. We're done. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, it is hard. I think that's the answer, though, right? Coding blocks didn't even make it to 100 episodes. We're shutting it down. <laughs> it's done. Episode 97. We our, the conclusion after 97 episodes is this is hard. Right. It, it, it's all hard. So, 
Yeah. I think you just have to recognize the decisions that you're making and realize that if you're committing to a technology or committing to a certain framework or feature or, you know, whatever that you just have to know that what you're doing and kind of, you know, keep an eye on it, I guess. Yeah. Well, making an educated decision is definitely helpful. But also if you make that educated decision, don't be afraid when the new one comes up to not look at it and go, you know what? maybe this generic interface doesn't make sense, right? Like if you're going to be switching to a new technology or whatever, don't just stick to it because you're being dogmatic about it. There needs to be a good reason, right? And I think that's the answer is there are no hard, fast rules in how you should do things. It's what's going to add the most value to you and what is going to produce a nice usable product and something that you can maintain. So I don't know. Yeah, it's it is hard. So at any rate, that was my tangent. I, I, I had to bring it up because it was such a great conversation and I appreciate Christian like interacting back and forth on that one. Cause this, this thread's been going for months now, ever since we had the thing, like he'll have a thought and he'll post it up there and then yeah. I'll have a thought and I'll post it up there. Yeah. I've noticed this conversation's going on where like there's long gaps, you know, where like, are you been thinking about that one for a while? It's <laughs> oh, awesome. So yeah. yeah. All right. So let's get into the meat of this episode and talk. Everything or something about trees. No? Yeah, and um, I did a little bit of research on kind of why trees matter. I've always kind of been a little scared of them, like, even though I've used them in various cases, just because they kind of seem like a hardcore design pattern compared to something like a design pattern, a uh, data structure compared to something like an array or something that I use every single day, multiple times a day, like hash tables and array, like day in, day out. Like I'm slinging those things, like those are my nails and screws. But trees aren't so much. And whenever I get to a tree, it becomes something that I end up Googling a little bit about and end up kind of spending some extra time with. And so I've always kind of been a little, uh, little, uh, what are you going to say? Like respective of them? <laughs> Is that a word? Hesitant? Standoffish, yes. L- little hesitant. Yeah. I give them, give them a little wide berth, give them some extra consideration. And uh, that's because they're one of the most important data structures. And there's certain types of problems that are uh, really difficult, almost impossible to solve without tree data structures. And uh, they're also really efficient for certain kind of tasks. And so we're going to dive into some of that. Do they all involve interview questions? Because that's what comes to mind. Like, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. They that's, are impossible. It's impossible one. to solve interview questions without an understanding of trees. And, and yep. you just, but that is so true. If you go to an interview at one of the big companies, big tech companies out there, I can almost guarantee that there will be some tree questions in there. Yeah. I also don't know who writes this stuff. Like there's, they kick it back and be like, ha, try this one. This, this is a part of my senior dissertation. Oh, man. <laughs> I haven't thought about it since, but, <laughs> and, uh, part of the reason it's so hard and part of the reason that you don't really, um, you know, we, I kind of mentioned giving them some respect is because a lot of times you need recursive algorithms to work with them. Not always, but they just kind of lend themselves to those types of problems and that tends to come up a lot. Which means uh, anytime you've got recursive solutions and you've also potentially got stack overflows, if you're not careful, if your language doesn't support uh, efficient tail recursion. And it's also uh, it just can be a little bit difficult to think like that if you're not used to doing that stuff. And I'm definitely not doing recursion as much as I am getting stuff out of hash tables and looping through arrays. Hey, hey back up there real quick. What is uh, tail recursion? Oh gosh, uh, I don't have a hard time explaining it, but so we, we know a little bit about, we've talked about in past episodes about how, um, whenever you call a function, it will, uh, it will allocate inf- uh, information and size for the frame for basically all the local variables and value types in that function. 
and it adds it to the stack, right? So the stack trace. And when that function's finished, it will remove that item off the stack and you'll get that memory reclaimed. That's really awesome because it's really efficient because whenever that, that function's gone, it just cleans it up. You don't have to worry about a garbage collector or any of that stuff. So stack is traditionally a really fast way of doing things. And what tail recursion means is that there's something in the language that can recognize that the stack frame is unnecessary for the current iteration of the function. It can say, I don't need any data from a previous call of this. And so I can go ahead and do another recursive call. And instead of adding another frame onto the stack, I can just use this existing one because I can see that there's no information that I'm going to need from that frame. And I'm sure I'm, I'm butchering this. I probably should have read up on that a little bit in order to kind of explain it a little bit better. But that's the gist of it is that you don't pop or <laughs> that's bad. You don't bad term. You don't push a frame onto the stack for every single call. In the It's like a sliding amazing. window is what is what you're saying. It's basically reusing that frame as you go down through the when you're recursing. Yeah, it doesn't even slide, though. It's just the same one. Yeah. So if you've got a you're doing Fibonacci sequence in like um, a crappy or, you know, the standard kind of recursive call, you're going to get frame, 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 frame with all those local variables on there in the stack until you finish. And then you can go and reclaim that memory. So if you're doing Fibonacci number for a really big number and you're using a kind of a the naive kind of uh, basic in- interpretation or programming, then you're very likely going to hit uh, a memory cap. And that's why a lot of times you'll see like Project Euler or some like Code Wars type stuff or Advent of Code will kind of um, mess with you a little bit on things like that, where if you try to do a recursive solution, you're going to pop the stack. You're going to blow the stack. Very nice. With tail recursion, it all sticks there. So some languages don't support it. A lot of languages don't support it. Like I know Python doesn't. Um, JavaScript, I don't think does. But certain languages like Lisp and definitely all the functional languages do support tail recursion. That's uh, a big selling feature because it saves you a ton of memory and it's hyper-efficient. Very nice. Thank you for backing up. What are we talking about? <laughs> hey, that's episode 97 yeah yeah we, <laughs> yeah. we agreed on everything was hard yes and we're done yep yeah i think every, like we can all agree that like recursion just makes everything a little bit more mind bendy and, and hard to work with right it does and, and you have to th- it not just is the problem harder it's like you said you have to worry about things like stack overflows and all that so it's not just worrying about the problem it's worrying about what language you're using and what features of the language are available yeah, when there's a recursive problem where you're kind of debugging something, like when you're done, the, the solution might look really eloquent and might be really easy to understand. But if you made some little mistakes, some little edge case, like you could destroy your whole network, burn your house down. Yep. <laughs> it can be really difficult to even debug because these things are kind of spinning off in weird, in weird ways. So it can be difficult to work with. And uh, Alan, actually, uh, our most popular uh, coding box post ever was talked about storing hierarch- hierarchical data in a database. Uh, that's you know what's so crazy about that? I looked at that. I wrote that back in 2014. It's it, still number one. Yeah, it's it's insane. Yeah, it was yeah. it was a product attribute database type thing. So um, yeah, kind of interesting. I, I plan on updating that at some point in the future. Yeah, and it dealt with the problem of storing hierarchical tree type data in a traditional relational database, which is not easy to do. And that's another reason that makes working with trees kind of hard. If you're used to dealing with these kind of persistence layers, then you try to apply these data structures and the algorithms that go along with them with those existing persistence mechanisms that are so common on our tool belt. 
things get hard. You know, if you ever worked with like product categories or something on the e-commerce site and the product could be in multiple categories and the category can be in multiple categories and things just get really weird really fast and it's really easy to blow that stack if you're not careful. Yep. Uh, there are a couple reasons why programmers like trees though. Uh, mainly I think for me is that it just models real world hierarchical data. Well, I can't fix the fact that we need trees. You know, I can't fix that we have directory structures and e-commerce websites and uh, org, org structures for companies. Like, I can't do anything about those. I need to model those. And this is, like, I think the best way of doing it because every other way is really awkward. But um, you mentioned in the article, if you're curious how to do that sort of stuff in a SQL database, and that's a, a great rundown of common techniques that you can use that are actually really efficient for doing that. But, yeah, I have to agree. That's much more awkward than having a node with a left and a right child. Oh, you're actually talking about a different article. Yeah, you're talking about the one where we where we had the episode about the different ways of storing hierarchy or yeah, storing hierarchical data in a database. That was using the uh, well, that was actually episodes that we did. Yeah, on that. Oh, so yeah, that's okay. not. We did bad. a couple. I mean, there there's the there's the database article that you wrote. That's that different. was just about categorical Models. data. Yep. Um, but then. We did a couple episodes way back when on uh, hierarchical data, I think was the name of the series. Yep. And it was only like two episodes, so maybe me calling it a series is a bit much. But uh, nested set model was one of them. Yep. Path enumeration, closure tables. Yep. I think uh, you just hit all of them. I think those are the. That's amazing that you just pulled that out. Yeah, I I, I was trying to remember even the name of one of them, and it I was, thought there was at least a fourth one. There might have been. But yes, so yeah, yeah going back go to up. it, but what Joe was talking about was actually those episodes where we talked about that kind of stuff. And, and it's, it's pretty cool stuff and it's different ways to approach it in a database, hierarchical, hierarchical data. So anyway, back to what you were saying, Joe. Yeah, so it's really good for moderate modeling certain things in the real world. Uh, also, it can be really uh, memory and processor yeah. efficient for different kinds of problems, which we'll get into. And uh, I really like the idea of it being, um, Good, good enough for good enough type solutions. Like if you have a tree problem, a lot of times, uh, it'll be using like machine learning or other places where you can get kind of close enough. So you can set like something like a max depth or a, a max number of search if you're looking for some sort of value and you can give up at a certain point. So these algorithms really fit nicely with this kind of notion like of, um, like game trees or something. If you've got like a chess engine, they're really famous for kind of trying to prune data or trying to give up after a certain level of iteration because it's probably good enough to make a decision on even if it's not optimum. And it hey. works out really well because we've got that depth thing that we can ignore. All right. Just to circle back one quick moment, uh, for those that were curious about the hierarchical data episodes, it was episode 28 and 29, Golly. and adjacency list was the fourth one that I forgot. Man, wow. that's been a while back that we did that. Those were good episodes, too. If you're ever looking at, at hierarchical data in a database, like we go deep on those. There's some good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I do want, so one other thing about this, the trees, why do they matter? One of the things that has stuck with me from the imposter's handbook that I think is probably, it might be the most important thing that they said in the book to me was just knowing the, these types of things that are available helps you make a oh, yeah. good decision when you have to go do something, right? So knowing about trees if you have a problem that comes up that you typically would have solved with an array or something like that, if you know about the other types of data structures, 
then you might make a better decision up front and know that the complexity of what you're about to do is much harder or much easier or whatever if you choose the right data structure, right? So mm-hmm. I think that's just just understanding what trees are and why you use them is going to be major in being able to do things as you go forward. Yeah, ha- having an idea about what the data is that you're trying to model in your computer's memory, right? Yep. And then that can help you understand what might be what might be the best data structure available to you. Yes. Yeah, if you're trying to solve a tree problem without a tree, then you're in for a world of hurt. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Bone crushing hurt. How would you do uh, that? And pretty much all the solutions that we're going to talk about on algorithms, a lot of them can be done iteratively, but it's just kind of ugly. So the, the um, recursion works out really nicely. Uh, I got a nice list of common uses of trees here. You know, we mentioned hierarchical data, but one thing I thought was kind of cool is like we mentioned doing it in the persistence layer where you've got like categories. We do it in middleware with like, uh, you know, C sharp or some sort of language that's running on like a server where you're dealing with like directory structures and stuff like that. But also it's really common in the UI where you've got like navigation trees or, or something like that, you know, like control panels that kind of let you expand nodes and do things. So I thought it was kind of a cool thing where we have like very data centric uses for this and also very visual use cases that kind of map nicely to this. So I thought it was kind of cool to mention. And uh, interview questions, of course, that's the real number one reason to get familiar with trees. <laughs> Uh, another cool one I always forget about is actually um, a structured files. So like XML, like that's a tree, like an HTML document. You're, you've got HTML with a body tag in it, and the body can be made of you know more and more divs, like thousands and billions of divs, and they all all go in a tree directory. So when you're browsing that source explorer or whatever in the Chrome developer tools, you can kind of expand those nodes in order to drill in further. Same with JSON. 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 <laughs> well, uh, Jason is the uh, the scarier version, right? <laughs> uh, search engines uh, make use of in a couple of cases. We'll talk about um, uh, sorted list of data. One thing I thought was kind of weird is a uh, Wikipedia listed a uh, workflow for compositing digital images for visual effects. Does that make any sense to you? Uh, maybe. Because if you're compositing in any kind of visual application, you're just layering things. Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah, I mean that was kind of the you're are you thinking like Photoshop layers? Yeah. Is that what you're thinking yeah. of? Yeah. I kinda had a similar thing in my mind. But I don't see it as a tree, I see more as yeah. a layer of things. But or, I guess if you're if you were to make the if you go back to the directory structure on your computer in File Explorer, then the quote directory structure in the layers within Photoshop can be the same thing because you could nest all kinds of groups. Yeah, you can. And you can also link very <laughs> Let me show you the ones. Coding Blocks logo documents that I've <laughs> yeah. got. PSDs I've got. Let me tell you, brother, there's some there's a definitely a directory tree there <laughs> yep. to see how that logo is made and all the different variants I have for it. That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh yeah, so I thought that was kind of interesting. That's definitely not a use case I would have thought of. Um router router algorithms, if you're familiar with some of those. Um remember back to uh networking class days, if you had that, uh then trees come in handy. And we're gonna go in depth on a couple different types of trees, but I did want to go ahead and uh mention the ones that I saw in the Wikipedia page just because there were so many. Oh man. And I was really surprised at all the different types, just the categories. So of uh, the categories, I've got seven. Uh, binary trees, B trees, heaps, trees, which is kind of annoying, but I, <laughs> I kind of think of them as like value trees. So they're like the standard trees. I don't, I don't appreciate them having a type of trees named trees. So I'm going to put a <laughs> citation needed tag in there or something. 
uh, multi-way trees, space partitioning trees, and application-specific trees. Those are the seven types. And I counted up the actual individual items in each category, and I came up with 115. Jeez, oh, man. man. I get to guess. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like, it's insane, man. I mean, some of those have, like, I remember it was, uh, I think, binary, maybe. There was, like, 21 different types of binary tree. Yeah, that's yep. ridiculous. And um, then so we're going to start going research. through all of them, starting alphabetically. <laughs> yep, because that's how the, all the good things are ordered. Saddle up, people. Hopefully, hopefully you didn't look at the length of this before you hit play. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's going to be a long haul, guys. Uh, but what's funny is, uh, so I, when I started diving into the individual research items, I was looking at tries specifically. Or we'll get into that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there were, I don't know, like eight or nine or 10, 12, something different kinds of tries that were all like very specific to certain applications. So even this 115 number is way too small. There's way more than that. If you start looking at subtle variations. Right. And that's really what they all are, right? It's just very specific changes to each one to make them fit a particular need a little bit better. But, you know, I mean, yeah. it kind of made me question that too, though. I mean, okay, so obviously we're not going to go into detail on 115 different types. No. You know, we'll give you enough to like, you know, wet the palate and, you know, you can come back with your own curiosity. But, uh, you know, I mean, in fairness, though, like when we talked about arrays, for example, and lists, we didn't go over all of them for that, too. But there's like two, different, two dozen different versions of arrays. If you look at the Wikipedia, the same Wikipedia page, uh, we'll have a link to it uh, in the show notes. But you know, if you look at the same Wikipedia page, there's probably two dozen different arrays types that are mentioned there. And we didn't go into the detail on all of this. Right. No, you'd have to be nuts. But it's kind of cool to know that that stuff exists. So if you're having a problem with one, you could do a little bit of research and see uh, what else is done. It's also really cool, too. If you look up, like, common solutions to problems, then you can see sometimes, like, oh, use a sparse reverse index, you know, try. And then you can do a little bit of research on that. And it's really cool that we live in a world where you can look up something so specific and niche and find find an example. A lot of them are named for people, in the way. So if you want to get a tree named after you, apparently it's pretty freaking easy. <laughs> so <laughs> just twiddle some bits and, you know, store a letter instead of a number or something and call it the Joe tree. No, we're going to call it the jam tree. Isn't, aren't you all about jam nowadays? I, I think, am all about jam. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you thanks know, to Glanks. But, but thanks to Dance to Die, though, I can't help but think of jam and think of Joe Allen Michael. That's right. That's what I'm like, saying. It has to be that. It's the jam tree. All right. Yeah, Glanks kind of ruined my life. So G thanks G flanks for that. <laughs> Turning me on to the jam, the jam train. <laughs> but uh, like you mentioned, Alan, uh, the basic structure of a tree is, is very simple. In most cases, you can just kind of imagine like a, a thin wrapper node that has a value that represents the data you care about and a set of children nodes. And there are other ways, uh, particularly you'll see sometimes arrays will be stored in, uh, or trees will be stored in an array. And I thought that was kind of interesting. And I've seen that usually uh, for what they call full trees, which it means basically every branch is taken, like for sure. So there's not going to be a bunch of sparse data in your race. But I thought that was kind of cool, uh, particularly in the, the heap use case, which is one of the four types that we're going to be talking about tonight. And you can have metadata, of course, associated with those nodes, like the file system um, example. You've got your data, which might be the name of the, the path that you're in, but you might have permission data about that or some other various uh, information like the file size of all, everything underneath it that might be useful. And so, you know, we get a little loosey-goosey with those definitions, but for the most part, that's what it is. So how can you have so many different types 
which with such a simple like value in children. And so I looked at the different types and I tried to figure out what was so different about them. And I basically came down to four things uh, that I could find. There's basically either constraints on the, the data structure, like how many children or mm-hmm. uh, there are rules. Like how, how many you interact nodes, with the tree. How many, how many nodes a given parent node can point to. Right. That as an yep. example of a constraint. Yeah, and sometimes like the binary tree will say certain values go to the left, certain values go to the right. Uh, the red black tree is kind of cool too. Uh, I don't know if we're talking about that tonight, but it's kind of a version where you um store an additional piece of meta- uh, information. You basically paint the nodes as you go across them as one color or another in order to kind of inform you and the decisions you make. And then these variations have really big downstream effects. So there are actually three. Sorry about that. So there's constraint on the data structures, stored metadata, and rules for interacting with the trees, which I thought the rules was kind of weird because that's like – the algorithm. So it's like we have different names for trees based on the algorithms that are associated with it. Well, but I mean, like, uh, it depends on how you're defining that, though. Like, where would you put in? Okay, because you, you kind of hinted on there are some rules about where you can put something in the tree, right? And then there are then there are trees where there ha- they have no such rules. So if the tree has those rules, then are you considering that a constraint? That's a good point. Or are you considering that a rule for interacting with it? Mm. Yeah, it's really a part of the data structure itself, right? Because it's not something that you have alongside it. You know, and that's why we don't like we don't call heaps binary trees in the that they only have two children. Well, we'll come we'll get into heaps in more detail. Yes, we will. Yeah, like we consider the hashing algorithm that's accompanies the hash table as part of the data structure, right? Right. So I guess, yeah. So it is part of the data structure. That's why you have many of them. That's funny. I, like I've never really thought about. Like I always think of them as being very distinct, but they're really not. There's a lot of like the the kind of a lot of gray area where those things intermingle, and that's yeah. It's the rules. Makes life interesting. It's the rules that make the data structures different for the most part. I mean, there's some storage things, but yeah, so well, that's pretty cool. Some uh, of those storage things are some common terminology. Huge, massive. Yeah, we'll, we'll let's get into some of this common terminology, but yeah, we'll get to it. Yeah, and uh, what I thought was really interesting and why I wanted to bring up the common terminology is that a lot of the common terminology deals with the tree as a whole or information about the nodes that aren't directly always associated with the node itself. Like you may not know that – or a node may not know that it's in uh, root, the topmost point in the tree, right? It may just be the topmost point in the tree. It doesn't know that there's nothing special about it. There's nothing in the, uh, in the node necessarily that says like, Hey, I'm the root. There's no is root flag, but it just happens to be the, the node that you've got a pointer to. And that's what makes it special to you. Oh man. I totally, now we got to come up with our own tree now so that oh, yeah, the man. node Secret knows tree. who it is. And anytime you ask it, it says, I am Groot. <laughs> <laughs> and it would be the Groot tree. Uh, That's funny. I'm I programmed, uh, I programmed uh, a heap earlier, and that was like the first thing I did. It's like if index is zero, like it would print out I am root. Uh, that's <laughs> awesome. Uh, that's awesome. Uh, so uh, the uh, the terminology that it, uh, I found uh, on Free Code Camp, which is awesome, by the way, uh, root is the topmost node of the tree. Edge is whenever you've got two nodes that have uh, basically a line kind of between them. So that's going to be the pointer that links between them. Uh, child is a node that has a parent. Uh, parent is a, a node that has an edge to a child node. Leaf is really important. It's a node that does not have a child. Oh, <laughs> I was talking about this with Robert uh, over the Slack earlier. I really hate that 
we talk about trees as if they're these things that spring from the ground and go up and they have leaves up in the skies and they start from the root and go up. But man, whenever you see these things rendered or drawn or in a diagram, they're always going down like you're looking at the roots of the tree. But we even talk about the depth. But hold on. In fairness, though, you don't ever get the trunk of the tree when you're talking about a programming tree. It's just the way it forms out from the top, right? That's why it's a tree. It, it looks like a. It, it looks like an evergreen coming down, uh, depending on the type of tree. <laughs> well, or, I mean, more specifically, it would look like the root system, but we don't talk about it in terminology that's, oh, that's a good point. Uh, you know, in familiar the to the root. Right. Yeah. In the ground. No, we're always talking about the leaves. Up yeah. In the sky. We're always talking about the, the top portion of it. Yeah. They definitely makes terminology. And I'm sure that we've just made things way better for you by, by going that route. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, that was it. So I just want to mention those terms because, like, if we're talking about a really large tree and that good enough type solution, then we're going to talk about ducking out at a certain depth. So I just wanted to cover that real quick. So if we say something like that, that we at least mentioned it and you weren't confused about it at all. Yeah. So the picture we're trying to paint is the root node is at the top. When we said it's at the topmost, it just fans out down below it, right? That's really what it looks like. And we'll try to keep that consistent. Yes. We'll try. All right. Starting with, let's talk about the tree growing up. <laughs> No, I'm kidding. <laughs> All right. So the first one we're going to jump into here is the binary tree. And so what is it? So unlike arrays or lists or queues or stacks or any of those, trees are not linear data structures, right? So we've already talked about that. They're hierarchical. So a binary tree is nothing more than a tree whose elements have at most two child elements. So they're usually referred to as the left and the right nodes. So if you have a root node, it has to have one or two child nodes. It can't have any more. And then each one of those child nodes can have one or two other child nodes. And it can just keep fanning on down like that. So uh, the root node, as we said before, is the topmost. It has no parent. Um, we already said this about the leaf nodes. I think we covered a bunch of stuff up above that um, – is now sort of just repeating here. So I'm going to try and skip a lot of that. Uh, I mean, th well, let's just say like, I mean, you, cause you kind of hinted on this, but of all the types, this one specifically gets its name from the fact that any node is only going to have at most two, two nodes, which is why it's, so it's, it's always like, if you're traversing this tree, it's a binary decision as to which direction you're going to go. Do you go left or do you go right as you're going down, as you're traversing down the tree? So, Here's where I think it gets a little bit interesting. And this, this sort of goes into what they were saying is there's just so many different types for everything, right? So there's types of binary trees. You have what's called a full binary tree. And basically that's saying that every node has either two children or no children. So basically it's, it's full, right? There's, there's no just one node hanging out by itself. You have the complete binary tree and that says that Every level is completely filled with nodes except for the last level. Um, they can basically fill up everything except for one right node. So if you look at the tree, it would almost be like a perfect cone or not cone. What's, what's the shape of that? Like a pyramid shape pyramid. going all the way down and it would be completely full except for maybe one, one node on the right. Like wherever that thing stops, it, it's just done. So that seems like such a specific tree example right yeah and i'm sure there's a use everything for is filled except for one 
Yeah, I, I'm. I'm sure this. But you call it complete. Well, well, it's not not everyone except for one. So let's say that that bottom row could have a potential of twenty nodes. You could stop at number three. So so if you if you think about like if you were to see something painting that that tree on a screen, right? Level one, it's going to put one tick. Level two, then it's going to do the left tick, then the right tick, and then level three, it's going to go you know left, Four right, more. left, right, left, right. So it's going to keep drawing it out like you type it on the screen, right? When you get to that last row, you can stop basically anywhere you want, but there can't be a gap and then be more nodes to the right of it. So basically, wherever you stop, you're done. Is is what is what that means. Okay. So it doesn't necessarily mean that it's, you know, all of the items minus one at the end. It's just, hey, where you stop, you're done. There's no more nodes to the right of that. There's no That's more actually, of a lower descent, descendant. No, no, no lower. At, it has to end at the same level. So there, there would never be. So basically, okay. if you think about the, if you thought. Okay. So there's no other, uh, let's say peers at your level. Yes. That aren't of your same heritage. They cannot go like once you stop, there's no more to the right. So if you think about a Christmas tree, uh, you know, something like that, and you just shaved off the bottom half right of it, that it would be like that last row just stopped, right? Right. You wouldn't have like one, one arbitrary, uh, you know, Christmas globe decoration hanging you know, off to the right, hanging off in the middle of that gap. Couldn't happen. That, right. that couldn't happen in this. Right. But that's what I'm saying. Like, that's a very specific yeah. definition and name for this type of use of a tree. It's really bizarre. So, Go ahead. I just want to mention it's really important to heaps actually because it's very important to the heap that it means maintains a uniform depth. So you can get in some trouble with certain types of trees where your tree ends up being a stick because you, let's say like you've got a binary tree and every node to the right is bigger and you happen to get a list that's an order. So now <laughs> every node just goes to the right and you've got a straight line instead of a tree. And then your searches and stuff are going to be negative, Im- negatively impacted to that because the depth is equal to the, the, the amount of your data. Uh, so if you need to get the last node in the tree, then you're traversing through every single node, which is really tree. bad. But heap avoids that by always filling in the tree uniformly. So it kind of fills up like a Christmas tree. So you start at the, the top and then you go from the left to the right and just fill up first one, then two, then four, and then eight and, and so on across it. And you're eventually going to stop. It doesn't have to be completely symmetrical because you may add, you know, an even or an odd amount of items to the tree. And so that's where it kind of stops. And there's a, you took that razor and just kind of shaved off part of that bottom, bottom row on the Christmas tree because it stops at some point. But if you were to add a new one, you know, right where it would go. Yeah. It's going to go right there and fill in the part that you shaved off. Yeah. So it, it's, yeah. I mean, the, the next one that we, uh, oh, yeah. Binary heap is actually an example of that complete, uh, complete binary tree. So just what you were saying, right? Where it's filling that stuff in. Um, there's one called the perfect binary tree. And this says that all the internal nodes, right? So anything between the root and the bottom most level is the internal nodes. Every, uh, all the internal nodes have two children and all the leaf nodes are at the same level. So this is slightly different than the complete binary tree in that they all go down to that last level, but you could have gaps in between those nodes, right? That's really all that means. So you oh, could like, cool. you could have little ornaments hanging off the bottom of various different parts of the tree. And they have different level, different lengths of no, strings that so they all end up right at the bottom. No, you couldn't have gaps in the perfect binary tree. The bi- the perfect one because the node above it would have to have two children. I'm so, talking the bottom level. The bottom level. Yeah, the can. bottom level. 
the bottom level, but but the but the node above it would have They're to have all two children. Filled in. Yeah. So the bottom row is completely filled in. There's no gaps because otherwise the node above it wouldn't it have two children. No, 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 no. Only the internal nodes need to have two children. So Which that would be an internal node. If you had if you had a tree of four nodes, right? And your your third row, right? That fourth row you have has to be completely filled in. Because in order for the third row, which is an internal node, to have for all of it to have two nodes, that means that the fourth row has all node has all of the nodes too. I don't think it's right because I think I think the point that they point that they make here is that all the leaf nodes are at the same level. So basically, wherever those leaf nodes end, it's it's that bottom row. They all have to be on that same bottom row. So if it's level four, they're all there. But I think there can be gaps in between. Everything above it has to be completely filled in, though. Um, I'm sure. Okay, maybe I misunderstood then. I, I I wonder if there's a visualization somewhere. I would hope so. Yeah. So they so if you Google that, you'll see that they do have some of these to where the nodes on the very last level can be sparse. So the you know the one furthest down, they can be spread out however they want to be, but. Everything up above it has to be completely filled in. So yeah, it, it's it's kind of interesting. It's a different take on that same that same piece. Uh, and I don't really know what the the use of that one would be necessarily, but it exists for a reason. Just don't know what it is. Um, you've got the balance binary tree, and this is the height of the tree is O log n, where n is the number of nodes. So. This goes back to maths, right? So if the height of the tree is eight, then the number of, no, let's say that the number of nodes is eight, then the height of it's going to be three, right? Because it's going to be two to the third power. So yeah, that's really important for like searching if you're going down, you know, left or right, because that means at most you're doing that many comparisons, right? So it, in that case, the depth maps to the number yes. of operations you have to perform. Yeah. So your depth is not going to get huge as the number of your nodes increases. And so that's really nice for, for being able to do that. Probably the breadth first search, right? Uh, more or less. So that's, that's a, a, a lot of algorithms that you'll, you'll look up the time complexity and it'll be like, Oh, it's O log M. And you're like, M, M is in Mario. <laughs> why, why everything else uses N? Why you got to make it weird? But it's because the, 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 Arrangement of the data actually has an effect on the runtime because it could affect potentially the, the depth of the tree or whatever the arrangement. And so they have to define it in terms of that, which is pretty loosey goosey. Yep. Makes me uncomfortable. And, and one of the key benefits of this thing is they say because it does have great performance because they have O log in time for both search inserts and deletes, which is a big deal, right? Like if you're in, in log in time, I think we said before, it's the second best thing you can do. So yeah, if you have a tree with a million nodes, a, a, a balanced tree with a million nodes, at most, you're going to have to do 20 operations to find an item in that tree. That's yeah, that's massive. Crazy. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. Man, I'm still tripped up on this perfect binary tree because like, yeah, Did man. Did you see some of the images though? Yeah, but everything that I said supported what I was saying. Because even they're saying that the formula for it is that a perfect binary tree has two to the n plus one minus one nodes. So they say if the height of the node, if the height is zero, so you just have one node, right? Versus if it's one, then you have three nodes. So, you know, because you'd have 
one parent with two children versus if you had two, oh. then you'd have seven. So we're saying that it's full from top to bottom. Right. That's what I, that's what I was, that was my understanding is it's, it is, that's why it's perfect. It's the perfect binary tree. Everything is full. Okay. I'll take that back then. Then I don't know why they would have stated it like they did. Why wouldn't they just say everything's got to all the way to the last level? Unless, unless, yeah, unless I'm really. No, I think you're right. Messed up here. No, I think you're right. There's one, one example that I'm surprised that, uh, I was kind of surprised you didn't include here was the binary search tree. Uh, we'll talk about that for in a moment. Uh, I think I I might have put it somewhere. Did I put it? Did I add it? I might have. I might not have. Um. Any rate, well, uh, if I didn't, then I'll cover it. Well, we'll come quickly. back to it. Yeah. Uh. So <laughs> this one, I think I I added just because it sounded cool. The degenerate or pathological tree. Put of. I don't know why I did that. No, I like it better that way. The degenerate uh, of, of pathological, pathological tree. tree. Uh. So each node has exactly one child until you get to the leaf node, obviously. That's uh that's sort of like what you were talking about where you kind of end up with this big stick going all the way down. It yeah, crooked stick. Yeah, it doesn't really make much sense. So um But you have yeah, to it's just a linked list at that point. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is a linked list. There's there's no difference. There's no reason to use the tree at that unless, point. Unless unless you were to say like maybe the maybe you make them A frame and the very top most parent node has two and then everything below it, but, that, but then it's know, not the same thing, right? That seems weird. Yeah. Yeah. So that one's kind of bizarre. A lot of these are so based on like your use case though. Right, right. So the pros of the binary tree, when ordered, it can provide sped up search over like a linked list, but it's still slower than an ordered array, which probably isn't much of a surprise. Which Um, we should clarify. Maybe this is where you meant for binary search to come in. Because like the difference between the binary tree and the binary search tree is that there's no rule about how the things are ordered in a binary tree where the keys live the nodes can be in any particular order that's not what you care about right but in a binary search tree you do care that they are in a specific order yeah like if i remember right and i guess i didn't type this in anywhere but as you go down right the the keys are always ordered as you're going down so that the numbers are are going up down the left side Right. Well, no, the numbers to the left would be smaller than the numbers to the, to right, the right in a binary search tree. Right. And, and that's for searching yeah. the, exactly being able to get the things quickly, be able to make those decisions. Do I go left or right as I get down this tree? Um, which if you go back to our binary search algorithm conversation, now you could really see how you could put these two things together. Like this is where, this is where understanding the data structure and how you might use it and how you're going to interact with it matters. Because if you know that you're going to be searching this a lot, right, then you can know like, oh, hey, there's this binary search algorithm. And, you know, maybe I could get some efficiencies of scale here if I were to, like, store this in a binary search tree to begin with. Right. Right. Yep. Yeah. And uh, I want to kind of highlight there, too, like the reason that you would use a binary search tree instead of an array is because, remember, arrays are like fixed size and mo- you know most languages and most implementations. And they're not good at removing items or adding items in place. So if you have data that's kind of like 
plopping in or getting cut out from time to time, then an array is a terrible choice because every time you take an item out of the array, you have to shift everything over to the left or to the right or, um, and same with adding items. So it's, it's a pain in the butt, but with a tree, it's really easy to insert here. So that's why it's just as efficient for searching as a sorted array, but it's much faster for removing items and adding items. That's the primary uh, advantage that I'm aware of. Yeah, and to expand on what you said, right? Like the the shifting in the array is expensive because it's having to move every single item. If you if you add something in the middle, everything to the right of it has to be shifted over, right? You 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 can get into some interesting decisions though that you have to make during that cutaway, during that cut, for example. Yeah. Because if you're if you cut a node out of the middle, now you have to look at the two children and decide which one of those should take over as the parent. Right. And then what happens if uh, I guess in theory, then the one to the right should already be greater than the one to the left of the new, the one to the new. Well, assuming that the one from the right was the one that went up to the top, but it could have ripple effects all the way back. I guess down, he would right? always be the one that would go up to the top then in a binary search tree. In a binary search yeah, tree, yeah. though, you yeah. could you could have like ripple effects if, as you're re re sorting those things, right? No, no, no. I think it, I think it would work out to where it would always be the right is moving up. To, as the new parent. Am I wrong? I uh, I'd have to look it up. Uh, you'd have to swap in for the parent, but then you'd have to compare it with the left just in case it's bigger. So it could get a little shifty. Yeah, I think I think it could have shifty. a ripple effect, but I'd have to look at it right now. I can't think of it off the top of my head. This is why the recursive thing kind of hurts. <laughs> um, uh, uh, so one of the just had a stack overflow in my head. <laughs> I did. Yeah. Uh, so another one of the pros is it can be performant on the inserts and deletes into the tree. It's faster than inserting into the middle of the array, like you said, but slower than a linked list because you might have to move some things around. What's well, more than one address that you're moving around and you might have to make some decisions like we were saying. Right. And here's one super big key thing that trees have going for them that things like arrays don't. There's no limit to the number of nodes other than the amount of memory you've got or amount of disk storage space that you've got because all that's happening is each node has pointers to the other nodes, to the child nodes or to the parents. Like that's one thing that I don't think I did much digging in is, and it might depend on the implementation of the tree is, you know, you always know about your children. Do the children know about their parents, right? Like, is is it just something where you're always traversing down, or is it like a linked list where it has a pointer back and forth? I, I think it depends on the specific implementation. But in a nutshell, you can add as many items as you want because it's just a pointer to the next node, as opposed to memory that you have to allocate for something like an array. Yeah, I don't think I've ever had a, a parent kind of link back up, like a double-A linked tree. I'm sure there's use for it, but I just never, never really come up because I, I tend to almost always do DFS just by default. And so it just kind of really programs really nicely, I think. And so that's good. I've definitely had experience where we did both. Yeah. Where you, where you knew your parent. Now, where it, where trees can get interesting is in situations where you want to know the breadth, right? Um, that, that can get. Interesting, but. Well, your DOM or, or your HTML DOM that you mentioned earlier is a perfect example of where you have both up and down, right? Like you can say, give me the child nodes and give me the parent node. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, it's so weird. I've never, I mean, I, when you said the DOM as an example of it, like immediately I was like, 
Oh yeah, I mean I can see what you're talking about inside of like uh the Chrome DevTools, for example, right? But prior to this conversation right now tonight, that that never occurred to me to think of it in that regard. Oh, well, that's interesting. I just always thought of it as structured data. I never thought about it as, as like the visualization that you know they do inside of like a dev tools or something. You got speaking of which, either. this should be a tip. You you guys remember that uh, there was a Firefox plugin, or maybe it was oh, even yeah. built into. We did it. do this as a tip. A three D. Yeah, the 3D thing yeah. where you can actually see like the the layers split. Oh and man, it's, I'm gonna it's, find that episode real quick. I it was so cool. I remember I gave that one as a tip. I'm pretty it was, sure yeah, it was me. It was so amazing. So uh, and that was early days, man. Yeah, yeah, that was I, really cool. It's old. Uh, I only did it like that week. (laughs) (laughs) I like live share in VS Code. Like, this is awesome. Totally forgot about it. Yeah. Man. So the cons, I didn't really have any cons of the tree. I mean, it's it's almost like a raise, right? Like, as long as you use them when you should, for binary trees, I should say, is, I mean, they they have a purpose. Did you have any kind of con that you want? Well, yeah. I mean, like, you kind of said about not knowing what kind you're going to use, what how you're going to use it, because... If you just use a plain binary tree and you have to search that thing, right. that is going to be, you know, potentially a bad experience for you, right? If you're doing that a lot. Yeah. I'll give that to you. I mean, it, it's, I guess it's knowing the use case. Uh, but the, I, you could basically say that about every single data structure we've ever talked about. I found it. It's yeah. called, <laughs> it was called Tilt 3D. It was a Firefox add on. And what episode was this? It wasn't as far back as I thought it was. That was surprising. It was episode 25. That's not as far back, dude. That's, that's like, we just ago. talked <laughs> about the hierarchical data being episode 28 <laughs> and 29. When I said far back, I was thinking like single digits. Oh, okay. Yeah. Not 25. I mean, pretty soon we're going to be able to say things in like double digits. Like, oh my God, way back in double digit counting. Hey, in fairness, back in the day, episode 25, we were releasing what, like one a month. So that was probably like two years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that was back uphill in the snow, you know. Oh, man. Actually, you say that jokingly? <laughs> it actually was two years in. It was, right? Because <laughs> cause we started in 2013, right? Uh-huh. That one, yep. we released it at the end of March in 2015. Oh, man. That's awesome. Yep. So a year and a half. Let's give it a year. And a, we'll call it, we'll call it a year and a half. Hey, you know what? In fairness, we had actually put out a survey and we were like, do you guys like the frequency of the show? And people were like, we want it more of it. <laughs> yeah. Everybody was it, like, I happened? want, uh, 30 minute chunks, uh, seven days a week. And we were like, okay, we see your 30 minute <laughs> chunks seven days a week and we raise you three hours every two weeks. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Real quick, I want to mention too another con, uh, at least compared to like sort of the raise for the binary search trees is that trees are, they can be infinite, which is awesome, but they're much less memory efficient. There's like a, an array. You've basically got, you know, one pointer and allocated memory and you can do those index operations to find whatever piece you need of it. For a tree, you're looking at a pointer per node and you've got a little bit of, you know, the point, like all the, just overhead of having that kind of wrapper object around it, but which is significant if you've got a whole lot of nodes. And so memory wise, you're going to end up using a lot more with trees, even if you don't have to pre-allocate. So it's something to consider. Good call. Yeah. Good call. Hey, here's a neat thing about uh, the binary trees too, though. Each level of the tree represents its logarithmic value. Well, oh, right. Yeah. Okay. So oh, I yeah. sound so, I sound super smart saying that. Yeah, totally. And <laughs> and I'm totally should be giving credit to Rob Connery from the Imposter's Handbook uh, for having read the sentence that he wrote. But it makes me sound smart when I say it, though, right? 
but yeah, so the first that first uh, node, the parent, the top, the root, right? He's the zero, so log of one would be zero. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's there right. And then you get down to the one where we said eight. That's level three. Yeah, that's very nice. Uh, so no, we have when about, to use. Uh, when to use is basically a good example is like when you need to do comparisons on nodes and you're not sure exactly how many and you're going to have basically you need a tree instead of an array. Yeah, I mean, I have some of the similar things down here that you mentioned earlier, like a file system is is a pretty easy one to see. You know, you got your C drive, then you folder under that and your files under that, whatever. Where this Those break- aren't uh, binary though. Yeah. Because you can have oh, multiple files. you're right. Files you're right. So now you're talking about like just so, trees. <laughs> I mean, I don't know that we we specify this, but like if there's only two nodes, then it's binary. That's, That's what we're going to talk about it as binary. But then if there's more than that, then it's I don't know how to pronounce this. K K K K R E or N R E. Oh, but that's when it's going to be like oh, a variable oh, number, number of, of, nodes. of nodes. So like in your file explorer example, that's what that would be, right? Yeah, I don't even N-R-E. know why I put that there. Maybe you only have two files on your file Copy system, right? Yeah, I think it. I, I think it did. Man, that's terrible. All right, this episode is sponsored by Discover.bot. Discover.bot is an online community for bot creators. Amazon Registry Services Incorporated created Discover.bot to serve as a platform agnostic digital space for bot developers and enthusiasts of all skill levels to learn from one another share their stories, and move the conversation forward together. And on its own, a good idea isn't as powerful as it could be. But when a good idea is shared, then it gains strength and momentum. It becomes capable of changing things in a way that is both small and large. A good idea shared becomes an innovation. You got to say it with conviction. It gains strength. (laughs) And strength. Discover.bot aims to sit at the intersection of ideas and innovation. They want to help people turn their experiences, discoveries, stories, advice, and knowledge into part of a shared canon that moves everyone forward. For veterans and beginners alike, Discover.bot is a place for learning, teaching, and talking. Head to Discover.bot slash coding blocks. That's discover.bot slash coding blocks to learn about how to get started on your next great bot. Alrighty, so it's that time to ask you to please leave us a review. If just a logarithm of our listeners would leave it a review, <laughs> log base two, then I don't know what that would be. It's probably not enough. No, we, like, we probably need way more reviews than that. We need O of N. I don't know what you're talking about. We need, yeah, we need, we really we need want an exponential. <laughs> We want two to the to the listeners. <laughs> We've gotten so so addicted to reading those positive reviews, and we just need more of them because we've gotten to a point where we really depend on them to get us through those Mondays. So please, if you could, just leave us a review. We really appreciate it. We tried to make it easy for you. So if you go to codingblocks.net slash review, there's like links and some screenshots and stuff that'll kind of help guide you to like Stitcher or iTunes or whatever. And uh, we really appreciate that. So thank you for getting us addicted to your good reviews. Yeah. And also to share us, you know, tell a friend, spread the word about the show. Uh, I mean, we know some of you have spread the word about the Slack channel, but you know, <laughs> maybe mention, Hey, while you're at it, you know, <laughs> give it a listen too. It won't hurt. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> you know who you are. <laughs> All right. So with that, it's time for my favorite portion of the show. 
Survey says. All right. So a couple episodes ago, we asked, what do you want to focus on improving in 2019? And your choices are front end. There's a 3P service for everything now. Or back end because Flexbox done. Or persistence is king. Data, data, data. I did that for you. That's, that's nice. <laughs> Alg- <laughs> Next choice. Algorithms and data structures. Can't go wrong with fundamentals. Clean code. Master the tactical before the strategic. Or architecture. I've ascended to higher levels of... I can't even say it. Oh, you got to do that again because you were going good there. Yeah. <laughs> architecture. I've ascended to higher levels of abstraction. I can't even say the word now. I don't know. Oh. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, yeah. Uh, or DevOps. Uh, uh. Good luck doing anything without me. <laughs> Thanks. I'll have to take care of that. I think we got some some weird stuff going on over here. Yeah. And I, I'm not a part of it, so yeah. I'm, I'm with you, dear listener. Yes. I don't know what's going on. Blame Alan. Yeah, it's my fault. All right. Yeah, so. I assume it's something terrible since <laughs> not saying it. <laughs> so assume the worst right now. It's pretty it's, much it's either curse words or nudity right now, just <laughs> so you know. Curse words or nudity. <laughs> Uh, hey, you can't see that I don't have pants on underneath this that's camera right. view. That, the camera stops here, and then that's it. It's all shoulders up here. Yeah, this is like the news. Let's start guessing before we get that explicit tag. <laughs> all right, uh, all right. So, Joe, you go first. I I really don't know. I, I, it's so hard. I'm going to say um, front end because I'm Mr. Jamstack. G flanks. <laughs> all right, Alan. I. Uh, I'm going to go with, man, I really, I, I don't know on this one. I'm going to say algorithms and data structures can't go wrong with fundamentals and we'll go with 25% because I don't think anybody's going to feel good about most of these. All right. Front end, 25%. No, 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 no. no. Oh, wait, <laughs> dang it. I'm sorry. Now I'm totally distracted. <laughs> Joe said, Joe said front end. <laughs> yeah, I said front end. Yeah. <laughs> He's 100%. upset about it right now. I said algorithms. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, you're both wrong. It was architecture. Really? Surprisingly. Well, yeah. Everybody's ascended. Yeah. Ascended <laughs> to higher levels of abstraction. Uh, that's what, what I don't know the, why I couldn't say it before. What was the percentage? 30%. Well, oh, 29, okay. really. That's I mean, if we're rounding, it would be 29. Everybody's moving okay. on up in the world. Yeah. I like it. So what were two and three? Clean code followed by DevOps. Wow. All right. Yeah. But, I mean, it was like, a, you know, close after you, after you get past the first two, then, you know, I mean, clean code and architecture were walking away with it. That's pretty cool. All right. Yeah. Good to know. All right. So for this episode, we ask, hey, how good were the holidays to you? And your choices are, awesome, I got everything I hoped for. Or, I got things I didn't even ask for. Or, it was good, 
I got everything I purchased. <laughs> or, oh, glad to be back at work. Or, I didn't get squat. <laughs> <laughs> we, we know which one Joe's voting for. Yeah. Bah humbug. Yeah, man. We're going to have to fix that. This episode is brought to you by Clubhouse. Clubhouse is the first project management platform for software development teams that brings everyone together so that teams can focus on what matters, which is creating products that the customers love. While designed to be developer first, and that's important, it's designed to be developer first. The UI is simple and intuitive enough for all teams to enjoy using. Now, when I mentioned that the UI is developer first, here's how developer first it is. There is a button on your story that you can click to actually get get hints for how to create your branch based on the story point. Yeah, it, it's a the UI is phenomenal. You log in and you can immediately see your work queue, your active tasks, your upcoming due dates, and your activity feed. Yeah, it's easy for people on any team to focus in on their work on a specific task or project while also being able to zoom out to see the work that contributes to the bigger picture using the fast interface. With a simple API and robust robust set of integrations, Clubhouse also seamlessly integrates into the tools you're already using every day, like Slack and GitHub, for example, and getting out of your way so that you can focus on delivering quality software on time. And you could sign up for two free months of Clubhouse by visiting clubhouse.io slash codingblocks. And again, that URL is clubhouse.io slash coding blocks and you get two free months and you can see why companies like Elastic, Full Story, and Launch Darkly really love Clubhouse. Oh man, I, I got B-Trees next too. I forgot about that. <laughs> All right. So uh, I'll try and blow through this one, even though this one's way more complicated than the binary tree. So B-Trees, what is it? It is a self-balancing search tree. And it gets all kinds of crazy. Uh, and we kind of talked about that, like the stick or that pathological bad one. This is basically kind of like a, a binary tree in that we have, uh, you know, some information about it, but it's really good at ma- making sure that stick, like pathological case doesn't happen. Right. It, it tries to make it fat as it's going down through there. And I think I actually have a note for that here. Go but ahead. one, one thing to think about with the, with the B tree though is don't think about the binary tree conversation we just had. Right. No, it is Don't not a binary Don't think about tree. one node pointing to at most two nodes. Instead, think about it as, you know, each level, each node could be several values. Yeah. And we'll get into how it sort of figures that out here in a second. So it's, there's also a name for it, an AVL tree uh, or an implementation of it. It's the Adelson, Velsky and Landis tree. So as Joe said earlier, you can just name them after everybody. He just came out of those names so easily, made it look so simple. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you get some practice? I'm well-traveled. Do you want, do you want my version of these names? <laughs> yes, please. <No. laughs> uh, Adele's on. Uh, Velsky and Land Ayers. Uh, hopefully no, none kidding. of them listen. I don't I'm think kidding. they do. All right, so so <laughs> <laughs> they're, pro- they're probably all they're probably all past, man. Oh, uh, well, that's wrong. Man, programming hasn't been around all that long. So we're, <laughs> trees we're fine. have been around since like seventeen hundreds or so. <laughs> I, I'm gonna have to look it up, but 
All right, so the primary idea behind a B-tree is reducing the number of times that the disk is accessed. So basically try and keep as much in memory as possible. That is the predominant factor of this thing, and we'll understand why. Well, I mean, I'll just go ahead and skip to it. They're primarily used for databases, and it makes sense when you start thinking about the fewer times that you have to access the disk, then the faster it'll be. So that's it. Most operations for search, insert, delete, maxman, they require O of H disk access where H is the height of the tree. So this kind of goes back to it where you want it to be a fairly shallow tree, like not all that tall, but super wide because the, the shallower the tree is, the less access, the fewer times you have to access the disk. And, and as I mentioned, it, this is done by creating the fat tree. So. You know, you can either like that name or hate it. So if we were to go back to the database example that you gave, then like help me understand it in that analogy. Because okay. I mean, like I can see the the B tree example, like from a Wikipedia article, for example. I'm like, okay, yeah, I get that. But real world, though, I want to understand from a real world point of view. So I think maybe the next few bullet points will help paint that in. So. They say typically the B tree node is the same size as the block size on the disk. Now, I don't know exactly how that translates to SSDs, but in spinning well, disks, you have block sizes, right? You have those on SSDs too, though. Yeah, right? I, I, I've never I mean, really it's just how you them. format it. You can change your block size. Oh, okay. I've never, never really looked into what SSDs. I mean, are. I never have. I've always just taking the defaults okay even so, in raid applications so which mike knows way more about this things than probably most people because he had to deal with them a lot in in a previous oh, no. No, life no, no. there are people period. that know way more but <laughs> so so that said though you have a block size on there 4096 whatever you're going to make this thing and that's what the size of your node's going to be and as you go down and you add more of these things, those are also going to be that same size per node. All right. And that is what's going to allow it to reduce the number of times it actually has to go because you're going to keep a lot of data in each one of those. Now, this also goes back to one of the other types where it says all the leaf nodes are at the same level. Right. So you're not going to have this tree that's got, you know, some things that are hanging down to level eight and then others that are up at level three. They're all going to stop there at the same place because remember, this is a self balancing thing. It's trying to fill this stuff in as it goes. So would this be an example of the, uh, which one was it? The complete binary or the perfect binary? It wouldn't be be the perfect binary. I don't think it'll be perfect because you may not have enough data to fill in all the nodes. You might not have enough data to fill in the node, but you have the node. And that's the difference. Oh, uh, that's true. That's true. So I think, I think, except it's not binary. Though. Yeah, it's not binary. So, but, but I think that's the analogy that you're trying to make though, is that like it's, you're yeah. not going to have, you're not going to have it staggered. So if your tree was three levels deep, then every node would point to something on that third level, right? Every, I think so. I think it you would wouldn't break have it like, only half of them point to something on that because otherwise you just rebalance the tree. Yes. I so that so. because again, your goal here is to keep your, your height less so that you're, cause it's an O of H operations. Right. Right. And understanding. 
Yes, I think that's right. And we'll get into some of the formulas of what, what actually dictates it. And unfortunately, some of this stuff is much better with a visualization. Um, and, and there's, there's a very good one on Geeks for Geeks. Wait a minute. We got this. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> no, if you've no. heard about our ability no. to explain a drawing. Oh man, here we go. Hey, we're not going to do it, but check it out. If you, if you were to draw the left side, no. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, you so got me too. I thought you really were. No, no. Um, all right. So the minimum, the minimum degree T, T depends on the block size of the disc. Every node must contain T minus one keys. So. This is where I don't know if you're going to fill in that bottom row completely because you're going (laughs) – so (laughs) you have nodes that are based off the block size of the storage, right? So that's that's the size of your node. And then your node must have the number of the block size minus one for the keys that are stored in that, right? So every node is basically, if you think of it, almost like an array of values in it, right? And in that node, you're going to fill that thing up until you get to the block size. So if the block size is 4096, then you're going to have 4095 keys in that thing, right? And so I don't know, would you just have nodes over there with empty values on the other one? I wouldn't think so. So I thought... Maybe I was maybe my understanding was wrong because I thought at that point you would rebalance across the nodes. I thought that's how it worked. So I don't know how it works when when all the data is not completely full, and I don't maybe, think yeah. I don't think that I saw enough of the uh, of the visualizations to to be able to describe it perfectly. Uh, the root may contain at minimum one key, which sort of makes sense. You need something in the root. All nodes, including the root, may have at most two times the block size minus one key. So, yeah, I'm, I'm walking through a visualization right now. It's actually really cool just to kind of see it. Like I, I set my uh, max degrees to four, and so I insert one. It's fine. Two. It's fine. Three. It's fine. Four. Up. Oh, that's the max. So we're gonna split up. Wait now. a second. We got one note and then one. Where are you here, seeing this? There. What's the site for that? Uh, CS dot USFCA something something. Uh, I'll have it in the show notes. Oh, B tree. I see it. There's a search for it. Apparently, this is a big one. B tree visualization. Yeah, I just keep inserting different nodes and it kind of pops it in. It's just got this nice thing. Basically, it kind of highlights each node and pops it in. But what it does is it just like, just like you said, is it tries to keep everything balanced and really tries to optimize for keeping that depth low by keeping that width. Hi. So it makes really fat trees, just like you said. Okay. Yeah. So it's dropping it in. Oh, this is awesome. And it has a very good visualization. So it did balance it out. So like what Outlaw was saying, you'll end up with two nodes on the second level as soon as it has to drop down to it. And then when it needs to split it. Now, this is where things get interesting, right? Like as you add more to this thing, the keys that are on the first level, the values in the first node have to come before the first key, right? Or on the first child node have to be values that are less than the first key. Then as I added this, the second node that was added on that child level, the values have to be after that first key, but before the second key, right? And this is the way it does it. It keeps adding these things in order and filling out these nodes as it goes down. Now, 
the interesting thing is they don't all have to have the same number of values in them, right? And I guess that's that's where that's where this is a little bit different. Again, this is not a binary tree, right? This this you can have multiple nodes on the second level that that aren't you know one to two going all the way down. And it looks to me like the structure that you get out of the tree is going to change based on the order in which you insert things. So I can't just tell you like, or I can't give you a tree and have you easily tell me like the order I inserted things in, but you can see that it does keep things wide and kind of, I guess the converse is true then like if I want to recreate the same structure from the same data that I need to put it in, in the same order. Yeah, this this little uh, thing that you found here is amazing because it does a really nice job of visualizing this as you go. So, like, I did some crazy things, right? Like, my first value that I plugged in was 5. Then the next one I did was 6. Then the next one I did was 11, and it completely restructured the tree. Like, it, it changed the nodes on the second level, bumped some stuff up to the first level. So, this thing, when, it's re- when they say it's rebalancing, it's actually moving the keys around to make sure that for search purposes and for not having access to disk as much, it's putting it in as good an order as it can so that you can get to your results quickly. Yeah, I'll I'll be sure to include a link to this in the show notes because it is a very cool visualization of it. Yeah, so you can see things constantly me- being moved around as it's constantly reshuffling the the tree. Yeah, and it's it's really it, it wouldn't even be worth me trying to describe to you exactly how it's divvying all these things out. It, Except we're going to. <laughs> he can try well, if he wants. Um, if you uh, if you up the the number, uh, I forget what they call it. If you uh, up the max maximum degrees degree. there, and just kind of keep popping values in, like it's almost it's like not intuitive if you're just kind of watching visually because like I'll expect like oh it's going to shift now it's all going to be even and it goes and puts something in some weird spot that I didn't expect because it's actually basing it off the values and not what I'm seeing is like a visual representation right but it feels like it ought to be so it's kind of like a little disorienting if you're not paying attention to the values that you're typing in yeah you've got it I mean it, again it goes back to the size so that degree thing that it was talking about and and that changes everything so i uh, so one of the other key pieces of this is all the keys are sorted in order within the node so as as we were going through this visualization and adding things in every single node the values that you typed in whether it was one five twelve whatever they're going to be in order within the node. Uh, the B trees grow and shrink from the root node. And that's what you're talking about, Joe, where things you thought were going to happen didn't. And it's because everything sort of goes back up to that root node to figure out, Hey, how do I need to rebalance this tree? And so, and so you'll see some weird things happen and you've kind of got to know the algorithm behind the scenes in order to even be able to guess it. Yeah. And it looks like if you smash everything down and kind of do it serial left to right, then it always ends up being in exactly the same order. So if you want to print this out thing, this thing out uh, sequentially, then what you would do is just a BFS algorithm. So you go breadth first. Or, no, I'm sorry. I told it's that wrong. Depths first. So you go all the way down to the left and you go up and then, you know, go right as you just keep going up and you'll eventually print out all the numbers uh, in order of their values. Yep. And one of the reasons why this thing is popular for things like databases is because the time complexity to search and insert and deletes are O log of N. So very fast. As Joe mentioned earlier, if you had a million records, that's only 20 operations to get to that value. So big, big deal in terms of performance. 
And um, you can't say that about a binary search tree because depending on how you got that data, if it, if I search, if I entered sequential data into a binary search tree, then I'm going to get a straight line. And that's going to be a O of log N. It's the worst case scenario, which is, or, sorry, I said O of log N, uh, O of N. So that, that would be terrible for a million, <laughs> million nodes. It would be a million comparisons potentially. Yeah. It could be crazy slow. I think we got to pause the show. I'm so mesmerized by this animation. It's amazing, isn't it? I can't, I can't stop. I just, <laughs> I just his, can't quit you. His tree's like 50 layers deep now. Oh, <laughs> uh, no. I've been playing around with like the different uh, degrees that you could set uh, this thing on and yeah, like it resets everything. It constantly yeah. like, yeah, it's, it's so cool. Uh, so how does it work? The search is similar to a binary search tree, which is really cool. Uh, if you're searching for a key, you recurse down the nodes. If the, if the node is a non leaf node and it has the key, then the key itself or the node itself is returned from the search. If the non leaf node doesn't have the key, then the child node that is the child of the first key with a creative value. So basically you're looking to see which node do I go to? Do I go to the one to the left or to the right as you're going down? You're basically comparing the key value and then going to the best possible child node from that point, right? Um, and it'll just keep going down until it either finds the node that contains a key or it'll just return node if it gets to the, to the final leaf node. Um, the, this is like, I didn't put in notes for every bit of this because this is where things get a little bit complicated. So an insert on this thing, it always starts at a leaf node. It does a binary search to find the node where the insert should happen. So it, let's, let's say that you have a whole string of numbers in there that you want. Now you're going to insert 15, right? It's going to do a binary search to find the node where 15 belongs. And if there's room, then it'll just put it in that node, right? So if it hasn't met that, that degree size, that block size or whatever it is, it'll just put it in that node and it won't have to reshuffle anything. If that thing is full, then magic starts to happen, right? And it's not magic. It's just a lot of, a lot of changing. So it will evenly split the node into two nodes at that point. And it's going to try and find the median value that was in that node, right? So you had 10 numbers in there. It's going to try and pick one that was in the middle. And then it's going to split off into two other nodes, add the values to the left of that median into the one node, and then add the values to the right of that median in the other node. And then it's going to try and make that median the parent node, and then it's going to insert that value wherever it needs to go. So there's a whole lot of things that happen there. And then, by the way, if that fills up another node that it happens to be doing, then that splitting continues all the way up the tree. So it, it ends up being a pretty, I guess it, it can be a heavy operation doing that. But the thing is it's optimized for search afterwards because it's sorting all that stuff as it goes. It, it sounds like, I mean, the way you're describing it, plus with that visualization, it sounds like the the emphasis is it tries to act more like a binary tree more often than not. Um, and when it can't, that's when it'll try to prefer putting the non-binary parts of that at the at the leaf at side until eventually that starts bubbling its way up, and then it can eventually have to you know get into a situation where it can resort and it'll can work itself back out into more binary like form. Is that 
sort of, I, I just don't want us to confuse the right. fact That's that it's problem. binary with it because it's, yep. it's totally not just two nodes, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, but, but it's trying splitting. to prefer it is what I'm, is what I'm getting at. Like you're, does that make sense? It's it's so weird. It, like looking at this thing visually, it sort of reminds me going back to our episode where we talked about the database stuff. Where the what was the name of the one where you had a left node and a right, and then things in between. The nested set model. The nested set model. So it's it's sort of like when you have keys. If you have key one and key ten in your root node, right? Then actually. I mean, the difference about the nested set model, though, and, and the tree conversation, though, is that the nested set model has this that in between kind of concept that you're talking about there, though. Actually, but, let me split that. Let me. I think. I think if I say it like this, it might help. If you have keys five and ten in your root node, anything then then let's picture that there's three nodes below the root node. Anything that was less than five is going to be in the first node. Anything that was between five and 10 would be in that middle child node. And anything that is greater than 10 would be in that third rightmost node. So it basically tries to split the nodes up so that each node falls either before or after a key in the previous node, in the mm-hmm. parent node. Yeah. I mean, I, after, you know, I took another look back here at the Wikipedia article and I really think it maybe that, that binary example that I was trying to make there it works great if your if your degree for each level is like three degrees before you split right but it sounds like if you don't if you're not going to do something that small then you know forget about it it's not it's not going to it might mimic the binary tree or try to as more often as as much as it can with a, such a small degree but that's probably not going to be your real world use case for the binary. I mean, I'm sorry, the, um, the B tree, the B tree. I, I will say one of the really cool things is the visualizations on this. When you do it, it shows it going through every step of it, right? Yeah. So if you do something that was going to cause that bottom one to split, then you're going to see it do that one and then create that yeah. and then go up and do that and then go up again. And that's where I was really trying to like to, to, what I was trying to, the point I was trying to make is that at least in that, that one visualization, it was favoring putting things on the leaves until they would bubble up. But yeah, I think with the small degree, that's probably why it's, it looked that way. And I know it's great listening to us talk about a visualization, but it's totally worth going <laughs> here because what it does. And I did you, I don't know if you guys noticed this, Joe, this is amazing that you found this is when you type in a value to plug in and if you if you type in enough values it'll be easier to see cuz it goes pretty slow but as you type in a value and you say insert you're going to see it do the binary or not yeah, the bi- you, you're going to see it do the search deciding where to put it to go find the node yep. and then it's going to try and figure out hey can I put it into this node and then if the node is at maximum you know it's maximum degrees then it'll go ahead and resplit it. Yeah, split and then potentially refactor all the way back up right. to the root. Right, it's really cool, and, and it does it in a fairly slow manner, so you can watch it. And uh, I mean, I kind of regret amazing. bringing up the whole binary conversation now. <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you, <laughs> but but yeah. So at any rate, the the B trees are are super important for that reason, right? Like they they are amazing 
Uh, let's see here. I've actually got the pros. They're better, more consistent search times than binary search because of the balancing of the tree, the rebalancing that happens every mm-hmm. time you insert a value. Uh, but you thought so I just popped this one in there. I was looking at this. Um, there are self-balancing binary trees like red, black trees, but the, pr- the major pro and the reason why you'd use a B tree over one of those is that it's optimized for batch inserts. So you imagine if you've got like a really big max degree, like say a thousand, and then if you're writing, you know, chunks of like 500 at a time, then the chances of you having to uh, rebalance the tree are less and it's more efficient uh, balance because you have to do it less often. And that's the primary reason. That's the reason those databases and disks use B trees instead of like a red black tree. Hmm. Interesting. And then I think uh, you put the con in here as well, right? Yeah, just the, that max degree kind of stinks. So that that's more of a difference between like this and like a binary search tree type thing. Is a kind of standard just because the rebalancing kind of stinks. It's you know it's a little bit complicated. It does take a performance. It kind of reminds me a little bit of like when garbage collection runs. I know it's not as intense as that, but it's kind of like everything's great, everything's great, everything's great. Oh, hold on, <laughs> all the presses. I got to do some work. Okay, everything's great, everything's great. You know what it brings to mind is SQL Server. Like we've all worked with it a long time. One of the things that you'll find out is if you're doing a lot of updates to tables that have a ton of data in them, the performance can be absolutely awful because what happens is you get these page splits. And it's probably because of things like this B-Tree storage behind the scenes where it's like, oh, well, I need more data. It doesn't fit the block size. I need to now do a page split and move this data into two different spots. I I was going to say, I was going to say something similar to that. Um, because I was thinking of like, uh, cause I was thinking like, okay, what's when you said that it's more consistent search times than a binary search because of the balancing. And then I'm like, yeah, but you got to take a hit then on that balancing. So where does that come in? But then the database kind of analogy came to mind similar to what you were talking about with, um, the, when you have to run the statistics, what's it called? Ah, uh, ah, dang it. In DB2, it would just be called run statistics, right? Uh, it, it's actually report, recalculating but, statistics. But there's the, the fragmentation that you're trying to, uh, re, recoup. Defrag the indexes and the statistics. You rebuild this. Yeah. Statistics. Rebuild the indexes. Yeah. yeah. Those kind of things. That's, um, maybe that's where like the databases aren't always taking that hit, maybe. Well, I, I, but they got to be doing the rebalancing as needed, though. I, I'm sure that the they've trees. maybe that's when you maybe that's when your your database starts to perform slow is because uh it because of that fragmentation the height of the tree has gotten too tall. Maybe that's what part of it is. Yeah, I I don't know what kind of efficiencies they've built in behind the scenes. Obviously, oh. they've done things over oh. the years, right? But yeah, I know, I do know, and I remember for years reading that, oh, databases use B-tree indexes. And I was like, oh, that's cool. I don't have any clue what that means, but you know, that's fine. Yeah, the A-tree. <laughs> yeah, I just threw out the number 1,000, but for all I know, it could be like 40, 40 million. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't know. Right. Uh, it'd be interesting. Uh, so yeah, I think you also, you, you put in these additional notes right here, right? Yeah. I just want to mention that, uh, B-trees are well suited to storage systems because like, if you're just doing, you know, simple kind of data sets and like we said before, a million times, it doesn't really doesn't matter. But if you've got a need for a tree, you need to do a lot of searches, but you also need those dynamic inserts. So an array is kind of out of the question. Then B tree is there for you. It's got your back because it's, it's got those kind of, um, the ability to write those blocks of kind of contiguous data uh, easily. So it's good for disks and database systems and file systems. 
All right. So if you're still with us, still awake, uh, we have a bunch of resources that we like listed in the show notes. If you like double tap this episode or head to the website at codingblocks.net slash episode 97. Is correct. This will be 97. All right. All right. And looks like I'm still talking. You are. It is now my favorite part of the show. It's the tip of the week. Yep. And my tip of the week comes from Both Zoli, who put a, a tip into cp.show slash tips about plant UML. So when I first uh, read this tip, I was immediately turned off because of UML because I've had bad experiences as uh, a lot of people have. But they mentioned that there was a, a, code, a VS Code extension, so I tried it out. And uh, it's way cooler than I thought. It is a way of generating diagrams with a like a simple kind of markup language. So there's a like a DSL, little simple stuff. So you know that if you ever seen those um, traditional like cryptography kind of um, diagrams where there's like Alice talking to Bob, you can do similar charts to that by saying like, "Hey, Alice, Alice arrow Bob, <laughs> uh, alternate successful case." Uh, else some kind of failure. It'll draw little boxes. I'm not doing a good job of describing it, but what I want to impart to you is that you have a simple tree-like structure in your markup file. It looks kind of like JSON or, or YAML. You pop a couple arrows in there. You throw a couple labels. You can do some coloring and some other fancy stuff. And at the end of it, you get a a drawing rendered of the words that you typed and you can actually zoom in and stuff too. And because of the code extension, what I do is I create a file with the extension WWSD. I change, you know, the words Bob to uh, outlaw. And when I save my diagram saved, so I don't have to be messing around in some sort of like, you know, art program just to do a simple diagram. I can do this stuff. I can check it in. It's just text. I can even do like loops and like simple cool things like this. And I can do it all in VS code, which I love. And it generates these nice little drawings, which are really convenient for showing to people rather than trying to explain stuff in an email. And I hate messing with diagramming type programs. So this is really nice. Yeah. These are like use case diagrams. Oh man. Class diagrams. Really cool. Yeah. Well, yep. but you, this is just all in text though. Yeah, like I'm, yeah. I'm looking at this. I'm like, man, I wouldn't want you to try to describe anything complicated, like, like giant in text only form a diagram. I don't know. I don't, know. Man. I don't like doing the diagrams. That's so what I was going to say. But have you ever done a diagram and you're like, oh crap, I forgot a box. And then you go there and you move the boxes. Oh, but the arrows didn't move. So you go move the arrows yeah. and then the it text is not aligning ever. for some reason. Yeah. Imagine if you did that now here. No, it redraws for you. No, but yeah, it's so cool. Like what he, he showed me a little while ago, the text, you just insert something in the middle of it and it redraw the diagram for you. It's yeah, amazing. Real time. It's like the markup uh, pane. So you get a pane to the right and your changes are made. Like as soon as you save the document, boop, shows up on the right. Uh, it, it's it, okay. it's sort of mind boggling. I'm going to have to see this thing in action because apparently Alan was made into a convert and yeah. I'm going to need to be made into one. He showed me in like two minutes and I was like, okay, that's uh, that's pretty super cool. Uh, yeah, I closed the pane and I forget how to do that. <laughs> I forget how to get it. Oh, there we go. I got it up. It's awesome. It is, it is very nifty. All right. So mine is going to come from a pane. Oh, here, he's showing you. He's showing you. He's got it up. 
Yeah, so I'm tired, so I didn't do a very good example, but you can see, like, you know, I started to change the uh, the bobs to outlaws, and whenever I save, you know, I didn't do a very good job of replacing, so it's kind of filling some stuff in for me. But you can just kind of see. You saw that? that it's drawing this cool diagram. This is kind of like a, what yeah. I thought of as being a complicated example. And the diagram looks pretty complicated, but it's only 20 lines. And I feel like it's pretty readable. Oh, it'd take you an hour to make that in Visio or something. Oh, come on. Yeah, man. Especially. What happens if you wanted to add something in the middle there, though? That's what I was saying. Yeah. He could add a line right there. Just copy and paste or, or you know, do a few of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You just keep adding them. It's a nested tree. <laughs> no, but I mean like another, another, not swim lane that you got there, but another actor, I guess. Oh, don't, another don't actor. be asking complicated questions. We don't know. Uh, let's see. So we want like maybe Alice talking to Alan. I mean, something like that. Sure. I don't know. Yeah. We'd have there to spend more time on it. Hey, there it is. So we got uh, Alan. Boom. They're not quite talking together, though. Oh, because I didn't give it uh, a relationship. I, I mean, it's uh, it's impressive. <laughs> I mean, seriously, huh. some of these some of these diagrams would take forever to make. Like like Joe said, oh, I forgot to put something in here, and I got to move these thirty blocks over twelve pixels. I mean, this is definitely like you know a Visio, but for people that just want to stay in, they want to code. VS Code. Right. Which, I mean, VS Code is being made used for everything. Like, it is, we never yeah. have to leave VS Code. If you ever find yourself with a reason to leave VS Code, think about it. It's the Swiss Army. Question Swiss Army IDE now, isn't it? All right. So, and yet yeah, still, I don't know here, but it's cool. Lightweight enough. Yeah, it's cool. And who has Vizio, man? Come on. Like, right. ni- Windows 95 called. Dude, I downloaded Vizio today. I was so excited about it. Because you know the pain. If you're using Gliffy and you accidentally do alt and then the left arrow, it, oh, oh man. Yeah. You accidentally yeah. hit that, that back button keystroke. Oh, dude. Oh, there it is. I've, I've actually had, I've had to walk away from my computer before because that's happened. I'm like, I, I, I got nothing left today. Oh, uh, so yeah, mine came from just, debugging multi-threaded app that has just caused me some major pain recently. So searching for the best way to do some debugging on a C-sharp app that had some threads and some parallel tasks running and all that kind of stuff. And I'm going to share the URL to this thing. You'll have to go to the show notes to do it because it's way too long to say. But here's the cool part. On this particular page that I'm sharing with you, they have C-sharp code that you can just copy and paste and stick it into a console app. They've also got C++ code that you can do the same with. If that's your language of choice, they've got VB, and I think that's all of them. All right. It will tell you to go do this, and then they have a little tutorial below this thing that will walk you through all kinds of coolness so that you can see what's going on in various threads. Like you run this thing, they've got set debug points in the code that will stop there. You can open up your parallel task window. You can open up your parallel threads window. You can open up your stacks window. And as you click things, it'll show you and describe in this document what you're looking at throughout this. It is Absolutely amazing. And it, it 
totally saved my life trying to figure out what was going on in this app where it looked like I was getting a deadlock in some threads. I could actually see the very last call stack of a particular thread. I could bounce between threads. It would show me the tasks that were associated with them. It will even show you parent-child hierarchy dependency trees of the threads that are currently running and attached to each other. Dude, it was... It was kind of impressive when I first saw it because I didn't know that Visual Studio had this ability in it. And honestly, you can't even debug the stuff any other way. Because if you've ever tried to put breakpoints in an application where it's multi-threaded, you'll see that you just bounce around all over the place. And this makes it to where you can make sense of it. So, Or what's worse is that you step in and then you hit the you know step over or step in whatever next – and all of a sudden, you went back up a line or yeah, two. You're yeah. Like, wait, like, what just wait, happened? And it's because you're in another thread, a different thread, yep. executing that same function. Yeah. This this thing is amazing, man. It'll actually show you like midways down the page on this. You can actually see the chaining, the tree of where the thread started and how they chained off. As a matter of fact, this last thing that you were talking about, the tries, they have something very similar to that. So like here, they'll show S-A-S-B-S-C for threads A, B, and C for class S. And then then it'll show where it branched off and went other directions. So it's like the starting points compressed into, into what everything has in common. And then it branches off of those. So uh, at any rate, just it, it was an amazing resource that helped me. Like it, it's so good that I plan on doing a video just to walk through some of the things that, that – that they show on that page. So yeah, check that one out. All right. So, uh, here's my tip of the week. Don't judge. <laughs> so <laughs> there you go. Laughing. <laughs> no judging. So you're in SQL server management studio and maybe you have like, you know, several queries that you're running and, uh, you know, you get back this count at the bottom and you're like, Oh, well, that's the aggregate count. I never realized, shut up. I never, stop it. I never realized that if you click on any one of those individual result sets, that the count changes to the count of that particular result set. Stop laughing. Uh, man, I, <laughs> stop it. I, I didn't know. I, why would I, why would I assume? You know what? I, like I saw this tip in the worksheet here in, in our show notes and I was like, it never dawned on me that somebody wouldn't realize that. I guess because I've looked at that stuff for so many years. When you saw that, I was like, I totally get why. I that's- mean, it's not like I haven't looked at it for so many years. I just thought like, well, why would I care? Like, I don't normally go clicking around in the cell. And when I ha- or in that, you know, when I have clicked into there, I'm not also looking to see, oh, at did the, the record count change? Counts. I'm right. just like looking at the data and focused on that. So I, I never noticed it until... A coworker pointed it out, and I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know. How long is that? Thank you didn't you. either? Really? Wow. Nope. My hey, people. Hey, don't assume. Don't assume because you've thought of something that, that other people – I mean, it's just one of those things that I've noticed forever. That's – I mean, yeah, it's it's a cool I, little I tip. never did. <laughs> so, yeah. So, if you execute multiple queries in SQL Management Studio, you get back by default an aggregate – record count for all of those queries. But if you click into any individual one, 
uh, then the count will be specific to that result set. That particular grid that you're looking at. Yeah. I'm blown. I That's didn't awesome. Know that. All right. And then one other quick one. Oh, yes. <clears throat> if you are on a Mac uh, and not booted into a boot camp, use the option key every now and then to see what other crazy options are out there. So, uh, a little bit of like how the sausage is made. We got some new monitors, <laughs> some nice shiny new 4K monitors. Only uh, the scaling options for us were limited by default. It was like, oh, you know, 1080p <laughs> on our 4K, or or it was either it was either like you know you get all of the pixels or four of the pixels. No scaling. Right? There's nothing in between. And it turns out like, oh yeah, if you just press the option key, you uh, see these other scaling options. And the reason why I call that out though, is that both Alan and I were like, oh yeah, we should have known better, man. Everything, you know, anytime you're in a menu on OS 10 or Mac OS, press the option key just to see like what else pops up. Yeah. Like Finder is a perfect example. Like if you were to click the, Click, open up Finder and go to the Go menu, and you hold down the Alt button, yep. you'll see Library show up, right? I was going to mention the same one. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. They've even got it on the view. Like, I don't even know why this is a thing. Like, there's some parts of Mac OS that are just really irritating to me. Like, the View menu, you hold down Alt, and the Arrange By changes to Sort By. Like, come on, man. Like, really? Well, basically, another way to say this is every menu, something changes when you press that key. Every single one of them. And that's why... Except like, for help. Uh, well, yeah. The help is not all that helpful, usually. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, that's why when when you said that about the scale thing, like, if it the scale button, you have to hold down alt while you click that scale button, and then the new options will show up. And I was like, I feel like such an idiot. You're supposed to alt everything in yeah. macOS. I don't know why they hide functionality like that, but they do. Yeah. Part of their minimalist approach. Yes. All right. So uh, we hope you've enjoyed this conversation about trees and tree-like things. Uh, if you haven't already, maybe a friend lets you listen to it on their device or pointed you to it by a link or something. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. And as Joe mentioned earlier... Uh, if you haven't left us a review, you can find some helpful links by heading to www.codingblocks.net slash review. And while you're up there, go ahead and check out our incredibly extensive show notes, our examples, our discussions, and more. And you got some feedback, questions, or rants, uh, I don't know, drop a comment on the uh, the episode maybe, or take it to the Slack and uh, make sure to follow us on Twitter and you can reach out to us like if you have questions on, on like how to get to that Slack and we'll gladly help you with that. And uh, go over to the website, cookingbox.net, where you're going to find a bunch of shows, social links and show notes and other stuff at the top of the page. Mm-hmm.